I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which deconstructs genre and narrative and finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. When I decided, I made the conscious decision to stop masquerading because it hurt. I lost a lot, I grieved a lot, I continue, I still grieve a lot. There are things you never think you'll discuss, let alone broadcast. But a theme that comes up repeatedly on this show is the need to inform yourself as a writer. In episode 7, I discussed how writers need to approach the subject of sex with intimacy coordinator Eta O'Brien. Today, we're going a step further. I want to know more about sex and disability, and what writers can do to improve portrayals of disabled people in fiction. Let me put this bluntly. How would you react if you were told you could never masturbate again? It's probably a question you've never even considered, because, well, why would you? Most would agree that self-pleasure is a human right, an experience that many of us take for granted. Sure, there are people who struggle to have sex for varying reasons, but when it comes to having a wank, there really is nothing stopping you. Except for some people, there is. Many disabled people cannot masturbate, whether it's because they don't have hands, they have little to no motor control, their body doesn't move in the right way, or they feel pain when they do try. And that's where today's guest, Andrew Gerza, comes in. Andrew is a disabled man whose experiences led him to co-founding Handy, a company which makes sex toys for disabled people. Chapter 1. Smashing Taboos Over the years, many great pieces of literature and groundbreaking films have begun conversations that we've shied away from for far too long. Even as recently as 2005, the gay relationship depicted in Brokeback Mountain was a scandal to many. How far we've come since then. But because those conversations have been started, we're uncovering more and more new untapped narratives, and increasingly we're seeing the power of the arts to break down barriers. West End musicals like Everybody's Talking About Jamie, which explores the sexuality of a wannabe drag queen, have become far more commonplace. And that can only be a good thing. But there are still many frontiers that have yet to be crossed. And Andrew is opening up one such conversation. So how did the idea for Handy come about? Handy came about through conversations with my sister. I was visiting Australia back in 2018 with my family and Heather lives down there. And so we were talking about just things that we could do to make my life as a disabled person better. And she works in advertising and I have all this lived experience with disability. And I've worked in the disability space for a long time. And we were just talking about, you know, what are some of the struggles that I face? And I said, well, you know, masturbating is really hard for me. And so we were talking about that after, you know, this, and it didn't come about right away. We just got to that part of the conversation. And she said kind of naively, well, why don't you just use toys? And I said, well, look at my hands. And I showed her my hands and kind of how they don't look like the conventional hands we see. They're, they're kind of spastic and tight and they have different ways of of being and they're just tighter than than your average hands so i explained this to her and said well these toys don't work for me and i can't really access them so i can't really masturbate and again this is not a conversation you would generally have with your sister but it was you know it kind of just happened organically because i work in sex and disability already and i've done so for years and years having those conversations isn't foreign to me and isn't strange so it kind of happened organically and then she said off the cuff just said well why don't we make one why don't we make a toy that works for you and i remember thinking oh do i want to make a sex toy with my sister 
I don't know about that. But then, you know, she was really adamant that we could let's try. And if it fails, it fails. But let's give it a shot. And I said, okay, well, like, it's that's a, that's a great thing to do. And then it kind of was born that way. And then we realized as we started doing it and as we started putting the question out to disabled people in the community, how big of a problem it is, we realized that there are no toys on the market specifically designed for people with hand limitations. Um, there are no toys specifically designed with disabled people in mind. They may design toys for the, for the elderly population a little bit, and that's sort of coming into the fold now. But really putting disabled people first, there was nothing like that. And we, as we did our research, we found that like hundreds of millions of people live with hand disabilities, arthritis, different things like that. And so we realized not only would this serve the disabled population, it would also really make an impact in the you know elderly population as well, and it would really bridge that gap. But then also, you know, looking at people who maybe want to use a toy and not use their hands and maybe want to try something different. So it really can serve everybody. It's not a subject that we are particularly fond of talking about normally. Um, it's a very taboo issue and it's not something that's supposed to be spoken about openly, <laughs> certainly not on a podcast like this. Now, when you add in the additional layer of disability, that would cause a lot of people's minds to scramble because that's not necessarily something that they want to even think about. They don't want to think about, you know, their own brother or sister engaging in an act of self-pleasure. But if their own brother or sister happens to be in a wheelchair, we just, we, we're not capable of processing that. How much of what you're doing is deliberately trying to smash the wall of taboo down and make this a perfectly normal conversation? You talked about the podcast, which you've been doing for some time. So this is not a new conversation for you, is it? Not at all. This is even before I started working in this field. I came out as queer at 15. I have been, you know, grappling with, not grappling with my sexuality, but dealing with my sexuality and disability since that time. And it's always something that I wanted to do. It's never been a conversation that I've been squidgy about because I've had people taking care of me my whole life. But just before you and I started talking, I had somebody giving me a shower, getting me up, helping me in the bathroom wiping my bum like like these are literally things that I've had to that I deal with constantly so my sense of what is normal and what feels weird to talk about is very different from the average person so it didn't phase me to want to do this it didn't fa like and to answer your larger question what which part of this is breaking down all the barriers all of it the whole thing the whole point of what we're doing is trying to unearth those conversations trying to have those uncomfortable conversations because they're there and if we don't talk about them they just sit there and, and they become more and more uncomfortable so the whole point of what we're trying to do is to smash that down but in a way that is playful and fun and it is, is sexy a lot of the ways it's done or can be done is really clinical and we want to look at it in a way that is accessible to everyone the, the name that's handy is a work of genius was was that you or, or your sister and I, and I know that it's a play on several words but you know that you can't help but smile and think that's really clever I love that title for the company yeah it was we were talking on the phone and we had originally called our company deliciously disabled I had done some work under a brand that I made called deliciously disabled years and years ago and we, we liked that and that was really fun but we 
decided that we wanted to do something a little bit more, a little bit cheekier. And we were on the phone one day and we were just bashing about ideas about what we could call this new company if we were to make a new one. And so Heather said, well, what about Handy, like hand job? And I was like, well, that works. And then I was like, oh, Handy also can be a play on the word handicap, which is which has been a historically derogative word to describe a disabled person. It, there's a lot of history with that word, and a lot of people don't like that word, but I was like, we can turn that on its head and play with it. And then, weirdly enough, Handy is also a weird amalgamation of our names together. Her name is Heather, my name is Andrew, so it's, it's Handy. So it it was really fun to do that, and we when we realized how perfect that was we immediately said yep that one let's go let's yep yeah, that's, that's great uh, i love it you say that you um you came out as as queer you identify quite openly as being queer rather than being gay but you also use words to describe yourself that um but somebody like me for example would not feel comfortable using but you you have a wonderful um hashtag phrase which is hashtag kiss a queer cripple now that 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 I would expect from someone like Ricky Gervais in a sitcom, but this is real life. This is you taking ownership of the fact that you and your disability and your sexuality are inextricably linked. And we can't yeah. talk about you without talking about the whole package. Is that yeah, right? That's right. Completely. The language I use to describe myself, I, to answer the first part of your question, I came out as gay at 15 first. So I came out as gay first because I didn't have an understanding of queerness generally um and then when i hit i think around 30 i decided that i wanted to use the word queer because well i sleep with men and well technically you could call that gay i think queer is a term that i use for myself because i don't conform to the typical gay male standards that we have put on gay men to look a certain way my body doesn't conform to that and i can't meet those standards so queer is a nice catch-all for me where all my disability and all my things can go with that. And then I'll also use the word cripple in my work because I know that's a historically derogative word. I know what the history of that word is. I actually just did a podcast that I released yesterday about the history of that word. So I think that word is really powerful because if you turn that word around and say, this is who I am, like I know all the bad connotations of that word and i know what that the harm that's done but if i use it for myself then you can't hurt me if i'm if i take that word back from you and say this is mine you can't you can't hurt me with that language for me that's great because and also having done research on the word cripple it's a clean word you know exactly what it means it means you're disabled it means you can't walk it means Maybe your limbs don't work the same way. It's very, like, if you start looking at the etymology of the word, it's very simple, very clean. Same, the same with disabled. It's a very clean word. Chapter two, the culture of disability. As writers, we have the power to start conversations. And with the many mediums available to us these days, we can send our thoughts far and wide very quickly. But with that power... We also have the ability to perpetuate unhelpful portrayals of people in society by retelling old stories, by assuming instead of investing the time to learn. And when it comes to disability, television and film has been notorious for missing the mark. One of the portrayals that I have a real problem with was the Me Before You movie that came out a couple of years ago. That yeah, was the Amelia Clark one. Yeah, 
and yeah. look, I love me some Game of Thrones, and Khaleesi was my girl for a good seven or eight years there, but you know, until she burned down Westeros, and then I had a problem. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, I really feel like that movie and that writing perpetuated the idea that it was better for him to die to let her live a great life if he was not around and they just kind of went with that and i was like ew why like why would you first of all why would you put that in a book and why would you then make that a movie and then when you when you look at the author of that book that person is not disabled they don't have disabilities so why are you writing on this to who's your audience are you trying to make non-disabled people feel sorry like what are you doing and so it just feels there's so many examples of that where they write from a the disabled person from a place of pity and a place of sadness because that's what society knows and they know that the audience will easily connect with that feeling because why wouldn't they and so i wish that authors and writers for both books and tv shows would remember that disability is a culture Disability has its own language, its own viewpoints, and there are so many different facets of disability. Like, especially if you're writing a TV show, hire a disabled writer. Hire somebody to say, if you're not disabled and you want to write the show, hire a bunch of disabled people in your space to help you learn because you're going to be ignorant. And I don't think ignorance is a bad thing in this space. I think the more and more we connect with the fact that we don't know what we're talking about, and we need help, and you properly compensate disabled people for their time and and give them a chance to help you, that will change the game. But I, I do wish that people that are writing on disability would try just a little harder. This point comes up time and time again over this podcast. It, it came up in conversation with Ita O'Brien, who is an intimacy coordinator. It's come up in conversations with Richard Bradley, a magazine editor. And it's very, very simple. If you're not an expert in something, then become more knowledgeable about it because your writing will get better. Ita said, you know, you wouldn't expect to write knowledgeably about fetishism if you didn't at least talk to someone who was very experienced in that particular area. The same with Richard. And he was talking about you're writing for a sophisticated audience. Therefore, you have a responsibility to understand the issues that are of interest to them. It's the same thing here, isn't it? We need to understand more about disability so that we can write in a more informed way. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, in my work too, with the work that I do, everybody likes to call me a disabled expert and I will immediately shoot them down and say, well, thank you, but I'm not. Because I think when we talk about disability and when we talk about this stuff and when you're teaching somebody this, to say, hi, my name is Andrew Gers, I'm a dis disabled expert. Nobody wants, that sounds weird. But if I said, hi, I'm not an expert, I'm just here to tell you my story, and I want to share that with you, and I hope it resonates, that brings people into you a lot more. So when people hire me for writing stuff and for writing jobs, and they say, oh, your expertise are amazing, I will, again, say thank you so much, but you're wrong. Let me just share my, <laughs> let me just share my, my story with you. Here's how I here's how I describe it. I always say, I'm not an expert. The only thing I'm better at than anyone else in this room is being me. And trust me, I screw that up on a daily basis. So I am not an expert. It's the same point, isn't it? It's that that look. You can't be an expert because to describe you as a disability expert would mean that you would have 
first-hand experience every single disability yeah. that existed, right? And you don't. You only you, you only know what you can experience. Exactly. Can I ask about go, go back to the the products and the company? You talked about your hands, and you talked about the fact they don't work in the same way that conventional hands would work. Therefore, the act of self-pleasure is not something that you can do without help. Does it go much more beyond the physical act of self-pleasure? Is there something deeper and more philosophical about this whole thing? Yeah, it speaks to independence in the bedroom. It speaks to, for me as a cisgender man, uh, it speaks to my sense of masculinity, my sense of manhood, my sense, like, like, think about it. Most people, when they have a wank, they can do it independently. And it's, it's, there's this sense of, when you read articles about masturbation or, or read books about self-pleasure, there's a very, there's a very specific sense of like, you can do this by yourself. There's no question in the writing or in the stuff you see that you're expected to do this by yourself. Whereas if you're disabled, that's just not an option for you. So it goes much deeper than just, I'm going to have a wank. It's like, this is my time to, for privacy. This is my time to feel like a man. This is my time to explore my sexuality for myself. It goes so much deeper. And when you can't do that, like I, I could masturbate when I was younger, you know, before the spasticity got worse and the disability progressed and it hurt to do it. And when I decided, I made the conscious decision to stop masturbating because it hurt. I lost a lot. I grieved a lot. I continue, I still grieve a lot when I, in my community, my gay male community or queer male community, there's a lot of sex positivity that is like, oh, I'm just going to pull my dick out and masturbate and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be hypersexual. And for me, that's frustrating because in my head, I'm that hypersexual person with all of them that wants to do all these things. My body doesn't allow me to have that though. And that's, that's frustrating. So this toy is so much more than just a product. It's about giving people, you know, what we say with our brand is putting pleasure within reach. And really, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to say, you as a disabled person deserve this. This is something you, you deserve it. And we want to, we want to help you obtain that. We want to make you feel the hottest you've ever been in the bedroom by yourself without having to worry about attendant care, without having to think about whether or not you have enough funds to hire a sex worker. Like, I mean, those are all options if you want to use them, but if you want to just be by yourself and get off, you should have the option to do that too. It's fascinating um, as a narrative because you are right. If you, even a cursory Google search of masturbation techniques or how to how to improve your um, self-pleasure experience, it is an, a uniquely solitary pursuit in the literature. Uh, you know, if you, if you just have a look at magazine articles or online articles or guides for uh, toys and how to spice things up when you're on your own. Um, so the narrative clearly needs to change to reflect the fact that there is a large part of the population for whom that's not possible. Does that go further than that, though? Because... If we think about things like sex education in school, there will be disabled children sitting through sex education classes for whom it will make no sense, no relevance, and maybe completely disenfranchising for them to hear the conventional narrative about sex. Is that something that we need to address as well? Oh, a thousand percent, yes. When I was in school, like I remember being in health class and having the teacher say, 
Andrew, do you want to go out of the room and do something else? Do you want to do like another? And I didn't know any better. So I was like, sure, I don't get to be in class. I got sometimes I would go. But what I realized they were doing was they were they didn't know how to talk to me about sex. Or on the off chance that I was in the room, and I remember going to a few of those classes where it would all be heterosexual, like penis and vagina sex. And I knew from a very young age that I was queer. And I was like, this doesn't apply to me. Like, I don't know what, like what? And also, where am I? Like, I, and I would never question it because I was like, I wanted to be the good student. So I would never be like, excuse me, professor, where's my, where's the disabled kid? But in my head, I was like, this doesn't feel like it's speaking to me. This doesn't feel like it's for me. And so I think there needs to be a huge discussion of sex education. I think sex education generally is super ableist, super problematic. And I think we need to just do a whole overhaul of how do we have these discussions? Because as we've kind of talked about through this episode, it's very much so much more than just thing A goes into thing B and then you then there it is. It's more about how do you feel about it. So I think a disabled sexuality class needs to needs to talk about ableism, needs to talk about how it feels, needs to talk about some of the fears that people have around sex and disability. All that stuff needs to be openly explored to really have a proper sex and disability discussion. Chapter 3. More than a sex toy. All good movements begin with an idea. This movement just so happens to be beginning with a hands-free vibrator. Because as I'm sure you've realised, Handy is about much more than masturbation. After all, if 99% of us never even considered how difficult it must be for disabled people unable to pleasure themselves without assistance, then what other issues are bubbling underneath the surface? Handy is game-changing in the disability space, but it's also a game-changer because it's got us thinking about every unspoken story that needs a voice. It's not necessarily about changing the world overnight, but about providing a better understanding. Yeah, you know, as you said that, I kind of, I had a joke in my head as soon as you said that. I was like, no, I can't change the world overnight, but I can change your world in one night. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, that that's kind of what it comes down to. It's not, yes, our product is trying to make a big splash, but I think it's more about what can I give to one person if I can do this and talk about this? Can I open it? Can I give them a new a new worldview? Can I give them something different to look at? Can I give them something different to think about. It's about having those, both those big conversations, but also the little conversations too, where you get to to talk with someone and, and see them and see them think about it differently and see their, their mind go, oh, I never thought about that. Like, yeah, we're not going to do it overnight, but if you can instill that understanding into somebody and get them to, I think the hardest part is getting people to realize they have ableist prejudice. They have views about disability that are kind of problematic but they don't mean it they don't realize what they're saying they don't realize that that saying could be problematic or those words could hurt somebody and so my job is to not necessarily call somebody out and be like oh my god you how dare you say that my job is to be like okay why did you say it that way where did that viewpoint come from can you elaborate on that for me can you explain to me why you think this like where did this idea that you're telling me that is super ableist come from in your brain and getting them to to confront for themselves why that might be hurtful and so a lot of activism in the disability space I think has been angry rightfully so because we've been so excluded but I think my feeling on that 
is that we have to come at it with a sense of positivity and we can't spend our whole time in disability justice calling someone out all the time because it's exhausting but we can call somebody in we have to also be better at being on the receiving end of being called out i think as well um, yes. and see it as a very positive thing because sometimes even the most innocuous comment can have such a devastating impact on on a person being on the receiving end of that so i'll give i give you one example a couple of years ago i was at um an event and it was a trans performer and i asked the barman what time does it start and he said oh what do you mean the drag act and i was like wow that's really interesting because that's that's such an historic term now and actually that's a completely different thing you know they are not the same thing in any way no so when you and i spoke you know the other day we we had a conversation around you know i said there's there's, there's the individual first and then there's the you know the disability and and you quite rightly called me on that and said well actually i can't separate those two things right you know you can't you can't talk about andrew without talking about the fact that i'm disabled so so don't do it like that and and you know it's things like that that if we're just a little bit better at going actually that's really interesting i've learned something there then that's great that's a very grown-up conversation what we shouldn't do is react and fight back and say no because then you get these horrible videos that you see on youtube you know you could disappear down a a white privilege or an ability privilege rabbit warren you know very very quickly with yeah, people reacting in the wrong way yeah i think also though it's important to as somebody who works in any kind of activism i think the way you do the call out has to be very carefully crafted because if you for two reasons one if you spend your whole day screaming about injustices either on either in the online void or in person that's not emotionally healthy for you secondly if you do that all the time no one's going to respond to you if i spent my whole experience of disability activism yelling either online or in person at somebody everybody would say oh well <laughs> i don't want to, i don't want to listen to this anymore like you're not giving me solutions you're just angry and i think there are spaces where disabled people can just be purely angry i think that's fine but i think if you really want to connect change you have to unfortunately in the society we live in you kind of have to hold somebody's hand a little bit and you kind of have to walk them through stuff for lack of you know not that i can walk but you can, yeah, you have to hold them you have to hold their hand a little bit and i found a real I did, I've done disability activism for eight plus years now. And for a couple of years there, I went down the angry disabled activist screaming kind of way. And I, I'm not saying that those are invalid. I'm saying for me, that doesn't work. For me, that made me sick. For me, that made me really unhappy. And so over the last six months, seven months, I pivoted my the way I talk about disability to provide tips and tricks for the non-disabled community to take that knowledge and try to use it. So on my Twitter or my Facebook, I'll put a post about four ways to talk to a disabled person, four things not to say. Like, I make it very clear. Like, here's what I think. And I, I put that out there. And I'll say, like, if you're not disabled and you want help, I'm here for you. Because I think we need to build bridges instead of burning them down. 
I know you've been on the show, but the the last leg um, show that was born during the London 2012 um, Paralympic Games um, had a segment on that was it was called Is It OK? And it was about helping you understand how disabled people were able to do certain things. For example, you know, swimmers who only have one arm, is it okay to ask, how do you not go around in circles? You know, there are, there, there's a lot that we do and anything that can help someone understand the issue and how to talk about it. And in our case, how to write about it is going to be a positive thing. So on that and the company that's handy, how close are you to having products out in the, the world. Just give us a sense of the timelines that you're working to, if you can. We are hoping to have the product itself out by 2021. We were supposed to be in pre-production right now, but Corona happened and the world stopped. Which but, is a shame because it could have been very useful right now. With lots I of know, exactly. Being. Yeah. So for what I'm sure will be our second or third wave of whatever this is that'll come, hopefully we'll have something ready by then. But we're hoping by 2021 to have product in hand or at least ready to be sold we're working on just the brand right now and getting the brand up and running and getting people know knowing who we are and i can't speak too much of the product because i because we're you know testing and it's all hush hush but what i have been told to say by my sister the boss is that <clears throat> you know we have toys on the market that will blow you away Fantastic. I love, the, I love those, that play on words. On that point, Andrew, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me today. Conclusion. A massive thank you then to Andrew Gerzer for joining me on the podcast. And to recap, what have we learned? The longer we avoid having uncomfortable conversations, the more uncomfortable they become. As writers, we have the power to smash through barriers and taboos. It's up to us to start those conversations. We've said it before, but if you're going to write about something, then make sure you're clued up. If you want to include disabled people in your writing, and please do, then speak to a disabled person. Talk to as many as you can. You can never be too informed, but you can certainly be ill-informed. That being said, you can play with the idea of ignorance in your character development. Allow your characters to connect with the idea that they don't know what they're talking about and what that might mean for their understanding of the world and their personal growth. And finally, tapping into the anger or sadness surrounding an issue is not always the most powerful way to tackle it. In fact, sometimes trying too hard to tug at the heartstrings can be condescending. Comedy, however, can allow us to address big issues with a smile on our face. And that, I think, is what Andrew does best. And it's a good lesson for us all. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. And if you'd like to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine. New episodes release weekly. Please like us and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Up next week, we'll be in conversation with Kate Davies. When I came out, I had no idea what women did in bed. That's why I wanted to write about it, as frankly as I did. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing.